Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, educating and empowering metastatic breast cancer patients and their loved ones to learn more about their diagnosis and make informed decisions. Learn more at lifebeyondpink.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about treating breast cancer patients during the pandemic with Dr. Elizabeth Berger. Dr. Berger is an assistant professor of surgery and oncology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgery. So, Elizabeth, maybe you can start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background and what exactly you do. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I hail from Chicago. I'm a Midwesterner through and through um, and did a lot of my surgical training at Loyola University in Chicago um, and decided that during my general surgery residency, I wanted to uh, specialize my interest in breast cancer surgery. So I was fortunate enough to uh, head out to New York City to do my training at Memorial Sloan Kettering in breast cancer surgery. Um, 2019 to 2020, as you you guys all know was a trying, has been a trying year for us. And COVID was a big part of my fellowship training year. Um, But uh, during that time, I got to explore um, many different parts of breast cancer, um, learn a lot about breast cancer. And now I'm excited to join the faculty um, at Yale University, uh, where I just recently became an assistant professor. That's great. So, Elizabeth, you know, it's one of these things that uh, has often intrigued me is, you know, what was the COVID pandemic like for people training in various uh, parts of medicine and surgery? Uh, You must have been, you know, midway to a little bit past midway through your fellowship when the pandemic struck. And so what was that like in terms of your training and in terms of treating breast cancer patients at Memorial? That's a great question. I vividly remember uh, early, you know, mid mid February, hearing about this, you know, what we thought was just another flu from China, um, and thinking that it, it might affect uh, um, things we were doing, but maybe not much. And I was quickly proven wrong by, you know, uh, early March when. Um, we essentially shut down most of what we were doing um, with regards to elective surgeries and even with regards to a lot of cancer operations at Memorial. Um, I can say that our volume dropped by about 80 percent. Um, I know that many New York City hospitals um, were incredibly hard hit uh, with uh, taking care of COVID patients and, uh, you know, a majority of their elective surgeries and even maybe non, not so elective surgeries stopped. We at Memorial had a little bit different of experience. We have still had a high number of COVID patients in our ICUs and on our floors, but we don't have an ER, so we don't take, you know, any kind of person off the street, but we did take care of a lot of our own patients, which greatly affected my experience as a fellow. Our case volume dropped, our in-person conferences 
stopped. We went all to virtual. We weren't allowed to travel to any academic conferences anymore. Um, we were constantly updated about possibly getting reallocated to help in the ICUs or to help on the floor or to help in our urgent care. It seemed like every week was different. It was constantly changing, constantly evolving. I will say, Dr. Jaguar, I felt so fortunate to be at a place where we have such a high volume of breast cancer care because I was still able to actively engage in learning about breast cancer and taking care of breast cancer patients who needed operations during this time. You know, it's hard to tell a breast cancer patient that they don't need to, you know, that, that we can't operate on them. So we definitely triaged and made decisions based upon who really needed an, an operation during this, this time. And most patients in the New York City area were quite frightened. So that was a whole nother aspect of training and going through uh, fellowship during the during the pandemic, where the uncertainty for the patients was almost worse than for the uncertainty for our healthcare providers. Yeah. I also actually had the experience, interestingly enough, of helping out at um, another facility, really just taking care of, of COVID patients. And that was probably the most dramatic um, and 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 tough experience medically for me ever. Tell us more about that. There was a call from our governor with other um, uh, for healthcare providers throughout the state and really country that if uh, we were available to help, um, that uh, you know they would they would call upon us, and I felt that my my responsibility was absolutely to my breast cancer patients. Um, and I, you know, continue to commit myself to my breast cancer patients, but I was able to uh, work a few times, um, in a County hospital, um, trying to help in, in more of a, a COVID situation. So what, I mean, what was that like in terms of, you know, I, I can imagine that you're, you're being torn in two directions. On the one hand, you want to help the greater society in this pandemic and all of these COVID patients, which really, you know, took took over many New York hospitals. And on the other hand, you're you're taking care of breast cancer patients who are particularly vulnerable, oftentimes with a compromised immune system if they've already had chemotherapy. And, you know, the potential of being a carrier um, of a highly contagious virus between one environment and the other. Um, how did you navigate that? And what was that like? That was a, that's a great question. And I was fortunate to be in a situation where um, we were tested essentially weekly. We had the option of being tested weekly. Um, and then as the pandemic continued to evolve, um, that that weekly testing went to um, every two week testing. But suffice it to say, you know, as a, a pandemic evolved and we got busier um with our surgical volume at Memorial, I, again, I want you know, my you know, attention turned back to, you know, mainly my breast cancer patients. But it is a emotional um, time as a healthcare provider to think that as an asymptomatic carer, you could unfortunately be exposing um, 
yourself to, you know, immunocompromised cancer patients, which is why I felt very fortunate to be in a situation where I could get tested very frequently to have the reassurance um, that uh, I had negative tests. And of course, I took all the other precautions that we possibly could, wearing masks, um, you know, making sure we were doing our hand washing, making sure we were socially distancing, making sure we were quarantining as much as we possibly could. Um, You know, we obviously took our our significant precautions with our cancer patients coming in alone, unfortunately, um, not allowing visitors, um, testing the patient's uh, before they underwent surgery. Uh, so, you know, multiple different layers of precautions to try to avoid any kind of exposures uh, to our patients and to our healthcare providers. Did did patients ask you about whether you had been treating COVID patients and was that of concern to them or or were they more concerned with getting their cancer taken care of because they knew that many patients um, were being deferred? I think there was fear for everything. I think there was fear of the unknown of um, just what exactly the the pandemic was was doing and could do, and and how you know sick it could make people. I think there was um, fear of coming into a hospital, which is why many of our patients did choose to defer if they were eligible to defer surgery. I think there's a lot of fear about not getting their, their cancer treated. So that was, um, you know, another topic of conversation. And of course there's fear, you know, from every healthcare provider by, you know, just working in a hospital of, um, you know, being exposed to COVID positive patients and then taking care of other patients. So I think we tried as best we could um, to alleviate the fears that we knew how to control. And unfortunately, there were some things out of our control. But again, I think we try to do as much as we possibly could to control what we could control. Yeah, I I think that that's so true for many patients. It was really a matter of uh, being stuck between a rock and a hard place in a lot of ways. On the one hand, you know, I've got this cancer and I've had my surgery scheduled and I want the cancer out because it's a cancer. And on the other hand, I don't want to get COVID. <laughs> and um, exactly. I, I know that I'm going to be exposed even at a cancer hospital, like you say, at Memorial, where, you know, the, the majority of the patients have cancer, but there still were COVID patients. So how did you kind of have that conversation um, with patients? And and how did you and the patients decide, you know, whether to go with the rock or whether to go with the hard place? I think in presenting the options to patients um, and giving them as much data um, and science behind the options was incredibly important. We had patients who had early stage disease or DCIS, so you know stage zero or pre-invasive, depending upon how you define that, um, where I think the conversation we had was these 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 cancers will not ch- change drastically in the next six months, and we can treat them with systemic th- or hormonal therapy um, in the interim as we continue to navigate the pandemic and understand it better in the next six months. And so we have that 
kind of time on our side. And we have that option. Um, and I think patients really appreciated the conversation of explaining the, the, the neoadjuvant um, treatment options for early stage disease. The, you know, kind of hard place were patients who had already gone through neoadjuvant chemotherapy, who, you know, needed an operation or who had worse disease that maybe didn't have the time option on their side. And so that was, I think, a harder conversation at times because patients were very worried about their cancer, very worried about COVID. And so, like you said, it, there wasn't really a great option either way. But I think with our ability to operate on a lot of our patients in uh, ambulatory surgery center where no COVID patients were actually housed, uh, gave patients a lot of comfort. I think um, knowing that we, that the healthcare providers were getting tested frequently, that the patient before having surgery was going to get tested, um, gave as much comfort as we possibly could to patients who did need to go through kind of, as you described, that hard place um, choice by coming in and having surgery. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, particularly, you know, there were certain patients uh, who even here, uh, the decision was particularly difficult. So in the patients who had more advanced disease, you know, we, we often, even outside of COVID, would say, you know what, take systemic chemotherapy up front, do your neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and then we'll operate later. And as you say, for the, the early stage cancers, the particularly indolent ones, especially if they're hormone receptor positive, you know, we, we know that these can be well treated with endocrine therapy and you can buy yourself some time. Where the issue really came in um, for us here, and I think this is true around the country as well, we're in those patients who you're up against a time jam because when you, you treat patients uh, in the neoadjuvant setting. So you give them chemotherapy up front for what is usually an advanced cancer. Um, you want to operate within a certain time window, what I, I often call the sweet spot, you know, mm -hmm. that four to six weeks um, after their last dose. And when that that timing, which they've been waiting for for the last four to six months, happens right during the pandemic. Um, boy, that puts everybody in, in a tough spot. We're going to talk more about the treatment of patients during this whole time um, and how that may have changed and lessons learned right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about breast cancer surgery and outcomes with my guest, Dr. Elizabeth Berger. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a global biopharmaceutical company with a robust oncology pipeline and FDA-approved therapies in lung, ovarian, pancreatic, breast, and blood cancers. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about pancreatic cancer, which represents about 3% of all cancers in the U.S. and about 7% of cancer deaths. Clinical trials are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers for the treatment of advanced stage and metastatic pancreatic cancer using chemotherapy and other novel therapies. 
Fulfirinox, a combination of five different chemotherapies, is the latest advance in the treatment of metastatic pancreatic cancer. And research continues at centers around the world looking into targeted therapies and a recently discovered marker, HENT1. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Elizabeth Berger. We're talking about breast cancer surgery and outcomes, and Right before the break, we were talking about um, breast cancer, particularly in the era of COVID. Um, so, Elizabeth, you know, you, you were mentioning that, you know, some of the early stage cancers, you know, you would kind of have the conversation like, you know, this is really quite indolent disease. It's, you know, hormone receptor positive. You can be well treated with endocrine therapy. But Prior to COVID, those were patients that we often would operate on first. So how have you really thought about um, the lessons learned from COVID in terms of changing perhaps paradigms that we once thought were fixed in stone? And and do you think that we've become a little bit more liberal about um, how we time uh, various uh, modalities of treatment? That's a great question. I think the avenue of neoadjuvant endocrine therapy had has been an, an amazing option for, um, like you said, these early stage indolent patients um, because of the COVID era. Um, I'm I know that in Europe, actually, they use neoadjuvant endocrine therapy a lot more than um, we have in the past. But I think it's going to open many avenues um, in the future to one, study this more to understand um, neoadjuvant endocrine therapy better um, for our patients and to absolutely give people the option. I think the tricky part of neoadjuvant endocrine therapy is are a couple of things. One is duration of therapy. You know, we uh, obviously put our patients on adjuvant endocrine therapy, so endocrine therapy after you know they have surgery um, for anywhere between five to ten years, depending upon um, many factors. So in the neoadjuvant setting, in the setting before surgery, um, you know, I, I'm not sure that we've uh, all come to a consensus as to what is the optimal time for um, for neoadjuvant endocrine therapy. And in addition, I think there's still com- some questions about the management of the axilla after neoadjuvant endocrine therapy, um, and really how we think about uh, treating the axilla after neoadjuvant endocrine therapy. So I see it. I see it though as we have now a wealth of knowledge and experience of patients who um, receive neoadjuvant endocrine therapy in the COVID era, um, and I, can, I think continue to receive neoadjuvant endocrine therapy. And I think we'll just have more data moving forward, um, which will only benefit. Um, our patients, um, and us. 
Yeah, I, I think that that's so true. I think that we've really started to have a little bit more flexibility in terms of, um, you know, the discussions that we have with patients in terms of uh, therapeutic options. The other thing that uh, I noticed, um, and I'd like to get your sense of this as well, um, was that, you know, even surgical options during COVID were changed a little bit. So, you know, we ended up not offering patients, you know, the, the huge uh, reconstructions in the immediate setting that would require a prolonged hospital stay and so on, which we had done all the time prior to COVID just because, you know, these patients may or may not require ICU. Uh, they may require, you know, several days in hospital. And we really wanted to make sure that if they required surgery, they were getting in and out of the hospital as quickly as possible to minimize their risk in terms of the virus. Was that the same um, in your experience at Memorial as well? Absolutely. I think that was a big component of the um, of breast cancer care that we were not delivering was big autologous uh, reconstruction. So, you know, there was no option for autologous reconstruction during the the worst of the pandemic. Um, and just as a caveat, you know, things were, things changed so much week to week. Um, I don't want to make broad generalizations, but when I say the height of the pandemic, you know, the, uh, March, April, May, we um, really limited even um, implant or tissue expander reconstruction. Pretty, that was pretty much halted as well. Um, because if you think about the need for expansion and such after the operation that had required, would require a lot of, of contact, um, you know, in and out of the office. So we really tried, um, to not, um, do, um, any kind of, of that kind of reconstruction. We also, Stopped prophylactic surgery. A lot of our patients um, come in with genetic mutations. They come in wanting a prophylactic contralateral mastectomy. Um, and that really was something that we did not offer during the height of the pandemic, thinking it would um, it was something that we could safely delay uh, you know six six to eight months. And then any high risk lesion. That those were um, operations that we also uh, stopped. So, you know, as you um, stopped autologous reconstruction, you stopped kind of the prophylactic surgery for, you know, genetic mutation carriers, contralateral prophylactic um, uh, mastectomies and, and so on. Um, how did patients respond? I mean, because pre-COVID, you know, these were things that patients demanded and, you know, felt were their right. Uh, and in fact, you know, we know that the Women's Health Act, for example, um, mandates that private insurers must cover um, reconstruction as part of a cancer operation because it makes women feel whole. So how did you kind of square that in your own mind? Did you feel that, you know, we were delivering suboptimal care? Did patients um, embrace the idea that we were trying to do what was in their best interest in terms of minimizing risk to the virus? Or did some of them feel like, you know, they were really shafted in terms of the timing mm -hmm. um, because they really wanted that reconstruction or, or wanted that prophylactic mastectomy? 
I'm sure everyone had their own thoughts and opinions on it. I think it's hard um, to say a general consensus, but I would say that most were either a quite understanding or um, were quite scared of the pandemic. And so whatever motivated them to understand that there was um, that they couldn't undergo maybe the you know prophylactic side that they wanted or the re- or have the reconstruction that they wanted. Um, I honestly didn't feel as those those conversations were that difficult because and what I would like to also believe is you know really that it was a lot for the greater good of of society. you know we in New York City were struggling with resources. We were struggling with ventilators. We were struggling with space in hospitals. Um, and so, you know, I think some patients recognize, a fair amount of patients, a lot of patients recognize that and, and understood that at this point we really needed to, um, uh, save resources or protect resources that um, we needed for really sick COVID patients. And that, it wasn't that we were saying no forever. We were just saying we need to to temporarily delay because of the magnitude um, of of the healthcare strain during the the pandemic. Yeah, I think that that's so right. I think that um, you know, yes, that does mean a second operation in the future. Yes, we would have preferred to do everything at, all at once. Yes, we would have liked to have given you the reconstruction that you would have liked. But I really do think that um, you know, for all of its negatives, uh, one thing that the pandemic did do for many of us was really kind of bind us together in a common humanity, um, where we really were going through this all together. And um, one of the things that struck me was um, how people really did get this concept of, you know, I need to do my part for society, which is something that I don't think we always see. I agree. I think it's, um, it was challenging times for all individuals. I can't imagine what cancer patients were going through at that time, knowing, you know, my myself who was, a, you know, a, a healthy young person being scared at times. So, um, but I think understanding that, like you said, we are all in this together. We were all, um, you know, experiencing our own different stressors um, and situations and doing the best that we could. I think that's really the um, the message that we tried to, to send every, you know, our, our patients, our colleagues, um, you know, kind of everyone we were surrounded by. Yeah. And, and I, I think the other question now is, you know, we're still not out of the woods as yet. Um, but as we start to vaguely see a glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel, um, you know, uh, many patients had delayed not only their surgical care in terms of reconstruction or prophylactic mastectomy, many patients had actually delayed getting their usual screening mammography because many of them, the imaging facilities had also shut down and so on. Um, and so now, what is your anticipation? Do you anticipate that we're going to have like this huge 
um, influx of, of cancer patients who, you know, haven't had a mammogram in the last six months and they're now getting their mammograms and finding things. People who hadn't had their reconstruction now presenting for that. People who wanted their prophylactic now coming back. Do, do you kind of anticipate um, kind of a, a, a wave of breast cancers now? And, and what's the system doing to prepare itself for that? Yeah, I think, you know, I read somewhere recently that people were very worried about obviously cancer patients coming back with more advanced stages because of lack of screening, you know, colon cancer, people not getting their colonoscopies, breast cancer, not getting their mammograms. Um, And, you know, I actually asked a lot of people I was working with in New York City, kind of what their opinions were and such. And I, you know, I personally feel that we absolutely will see probably an up tick in terms of um, patients coming in. Now, I think the the bigger question is uh, begs to be asked is, are those are the uh, the patients coming in going to have more advanced disease? And I would like to think no, because I think, you know, mammography does such a good job at catching um, cancers early. Um, and, you know, if a woman feel felt a lump, you know, I think there was still access to um, get imaging, you know, during the pandemic, uh, if there was any kind of symptom or concern in, in a woman's breast. So it, it, I think, you know, the verdict is still out. It's really hard to say um, what, you know, we're going to see now in the next six to 12 months in terms of, um, more cancers, worse cancers. Um, but I, I do think there still is, um, probably a lot of, you know, high risk lesions, um, that need to be taken care of. Um, and, you know, thinking about now maybe patients who didn't get reconstructed coming back in and wanting reconstruction or contralateral surgery, um, and such. Dr. Elizabeth Berger is an assistant professor of surgery and oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.